This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I am Julian, a co-host of the channel. Today, I have the distinct pleasure to speak with Dr. Dominique Townsend about her new book, A Buddhist Sensibility, Aesthetic Education at Tibet's Mingjuli Monastery. Dominique Townsend is Assistant Professor of Buddhist Studies and Program Chair of Interdisciplinary Study of Religions at Bard College in Annandale on Hudson, New York. Her primary research interests include Tibetan Buddhist history, aesthetics, cultural production, poetics, and translation theory. In addition to being a scholar of Buddhism, she is also a poet and published a book of poems called The Weather and Our Tempers with Brooklyn Art Press in 2013, and another book about Buddhism for children and families called Shantideva, How to Wake Up a Hero with Wisdom Publications in 2015. Today, we'll be discussing her first scholarly monograph, a Buddhist Sensibility, Aesthetic, Education, and Tibet Mingjuli Monastery, published by Columbia University Press in March 2021. Welcome, Dominique. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful to have you too. So, Dominique, as is part of the tradition of the New Books channel, I'd like to start by asking you a biographical question. How did you come to this field of Buddhist studies in the first place? I think that um, it's a long history for me, actually. I was interested in Buddhism uh, as a uh, a teenager. I remember in high school coming across the work of Thich Nhat Hanh. I think the first book I read was uh, Pieces Every Step. Um, I still vividly remember the cover with this dandelion on the on the front. Um, and I, I from there, I became interested in um, in Buddhist poetry and translation. So I was reading in English, but reading the work of Zen poets, um, of Thich Nhat Hanh himself. Um, and then it sort of came into the uh, the beats um, as someone who even in high school was really interested in poetry. I was really drawn to those those writers and the Buddhist themes. Um, and at the same time, I was also, I did a lot of sculpture in high school and college. I, I did a lot of, um, especially modeling and clay, figure modeling and clay. And I was uh, really attracted to Buddhist sculpture as well. Um, and in fact, I have a very vivid memory of being in high school in Providence, Rhode Island. And I was in the RISD Museum, which has in its collection a phenomenal, um, very large uh, wooden Buddha. Um, and I sort of was standing in front of that sculpture, admiring it. And somehow it dawned on me that, that I could study Buddhism in college. And this was a real revelation to me. And um, uh, in fact, I, I, I dove right in and, uh, and sort of never looked back. So it was from even from my, my earliest time as a first year um, in college that I was drawn to Buddhism. And then really it was through engaging with particular uh, professors and teachers that I um, eventually made my way to Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah, thank you very much. I always enjoy asking people how they come to the field of Buddhist studies. And unlike the Buddha's life story, which served as a model, everyone seems to come up with quite different answers. 
And if you don't mind me um, following up with a related question, since you started mentioning um, after college, you also went into grad school and continue pursuing this field of research. So as far as I understand, this book is um, based on your doctoral dissertation. And I was wondering if you mind sharing with us a little bit about the book and how did it come into being in the first place? Sure. Um, so actually, going back again to my undergrad years, um, when I was a junior at Barnard, I did the um, School for International Trainings Tibetan Studies program, um, which was located in India and in Dharamsala and Kathmandu. And then we also went to, uh, to Tibet for a month. Um, and it was during that time, actually, that I met um, Dubert de Clier, who was a wonderful teacher um, and scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, um, and really sort of ignited my interest in Tibetan studies at that time as an undergrad. I actually wrote a project, a, a sort of ethnographic and historical project about the women of Minderling in that time uh, that I was studying abroad as a, a junior in college. So I already had... Um, I met uh, Minderling uh, Kamdur Rinpoche and her sister during that time and had a connection with them that felt very meaningful to me. And so it was actually, you know, I think I was, I don't know, 20 years old or something when I first began um, to be interested in Minderling as an institution. And then um, after I graduated from college, I lived for a short period of time in Dharamsala at Domaling Nunnery. Um, and then I moved to Kathmandu where I worked for SIT and other study abroad programs. And uh, during that time was able to, you know, study Tibetan language, to uh, travel to actually a, a just an, a sort of, I have an embarrassment of riches of memories of, of places in Tibet uh, in Nepal that I was able to travel in Northern India. Um, so I, I gained a lot of, of uh, experience um, and also just, uh, I, I think, planted a lot of seeds in my own um, sort of mind uh, for, for future research projects during that time. Um, and then I, I, when I came back to graduate, I came back to the United States to start graduate school at Harvard Divinity School. Um, and in some sense, I actually didn't intend to continue that work on Minderling. Um, I, I had other ideas, um, but almost sort of magnetically, um, I kept getting drawn back, you know, to this uh, to this institution of Minderling. And I was interested in um, practices of cultivating uh, dream states. The bardo of dreams brought me back to Minderling. You know, I was interested in sort of connections between the secular and the Buddhist, between the religious and the political, brought me back to Minderling. I was interested in the early modern and the sort of, uh, this also brought me, brought me back to Minderling. Um, so in many ways, uh, I, I felt sort of, um, you know, kind of compelled, I guess, uh, in a way that, that was quite pleasurable um, once I accepted it. You know, it wasn't as if I fought it, but it was more that, um, you know, I, I, it wasn't my conscious intention to continue that research. Um, but actually, it was really, I, I, I remember being in the stacks of the library at Harvard with our colleague, Holly Gailey, and uh, looking through Tibetan texts together and finding um, the letters of Terdag Lingpa, which I, I address in the book, um, and just being so excited 
by the variety of uh, people he was inter that he was um, writing letters to, the a variety of topics, uh, the variety of, of styles, which I could only just sort of barely scratch the surface of in that first instance of reading them. But uh, it really, um, it really kind of I think that text, finding that text, um, and the excitement that I shared with um, with Dr. Gailey at that time um, sort of really cinched it for me, right? That that or clinched it rather. That was the um, the topic that I wanted to pursue for my dissertation. Um, and then actually from there, I went at, from Harvard. I went to Columbia to work with Gray Tuttle. So I had um, I was incredibly fortunate at, at Harvard to work with uh, Janet Gatzel and Leonard Vanderkite, both of whom were very, very important mentors. Um, and then I went to Columbia and really uh, began in earnest the dissertation project under the, um, the guidance of Gray Tuttle. Yeah, thank you. What a what a fascinating story. And you can al almost, as you said, always see a lot of the themes in this book. You're meeting with important Buddhist women, the idea of auspicious connection, or as you talk about Denji, already coming to play as an inception of the project. And I think the title, maybe we can start with the title of the book, which already is very fascinating. It is called A Buddhist Sensibility, Aesthetic Education, and Tibet's Mingjuling Monastery. I think you spoke in the introduction, and I'm quoting you here, quote, aesthetics as a connective tissue between Buddhist and worldly activities. I think for people who are less familiar with Buddhism, they might not first um, think of a connection between Buddhist and worldly activities. And when they conceive of that connection, aesthetics might not be the first thing that they will go to. I wonder if you would like to speak a little bit more about aesthetics and aesthetic formation as the key connecting point for your book. Yes, thanks. Um, well, in a sense, you know, I was very interested in um, material culture, materiality, material history at the beginning through my master's program um, at Harvard and then continued in that line of thinking um, at Columbia. And I think I began the dissertation research um, in a certain way with the idea that this would be a, a study of, of um, material culture and history at Minderling. In some ways, I was thwarted by um, the just the basic kind of logistics of being able to, um, although I was able to travel to the main seat of Minderling in central Tibet, um, during those years of doing research, and although I had traveled there um, during the time I lived in, in um, Kathmandu, I um, and I, I encountered many amazing objects. Um, the the sort of um, particular um, the political situation in a certain way, uh, uh, um, in, in short, led uh, led me to turn more and more to texts because that's what I had access to. Um, and what I found was actually that I could, in certain ways, quench my thirst for materiality and material culture um, because there was so much attention to it in the text that I was looking at. So in, in the very beginning, I wasn't framing this as a study of aesthetics so much as a study of kind of um, material cultural production, um, for which um, I was drawn to Minderling again because you know, in learning about Minderling early on, uh, I found that Minderling was 
you know, famous for incense production, famous for, um, you know, the quality of, of the paintings and the mandalas um, and the torma that came, those, the, the um, practices that came from Minderling. Um, and then from there also found that Minderling, of course, was famous for its musical liturgies, for its dance. And suddenly I, I started to see uh, beyond the sort of materiality to um, the senses, right? And in some sense started to see the work um, that was happening at Minderling, especially in the early, uh, its early period in um, the late 17th, early 18th century as really in certain ways, uh, certainly revolving around what we call ritual, um, but through there also really working with the senses and um, with all of the senses. And, you know, I, I had a sort of eureka moment. I remember I was taking a, um, a class on uh, material culture with Gray Tuttle. We, it was a wonderful class, uh, taking advantage of all the kind of museum collections in New York City. And um, I, I, I think I actually literally woke from a dream uh, with this sort of word aesthetics, you know, sort of <laughs> out in front of my, um, my, my uh, visual imagination. And I thought, I think this is in some ways the kind of, you know, I used the word um, connective tissue that's tying these together. So I, in that sense, I didn't mean aesthetics as just a philosophy of beauty or of art, although that's important to me but really something more basic about uh, the senses and the objects of the senses. And so it was, I think, probably in my, maybe my third year of my doctoral studies, second or third year, that that really kind of came into focus for me as a useful framework for thinking about the kind of um, the, the phenomena that I was seeing at Mindrilling. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, and then in terms of the uh, thanks. I, I wanted to finish because I realized there was another part to your question. Um, in terms of the um, the way that that I, I came to see that aesthetics works in thinking about kind of religious or Buddhist commitments and activities and worldly commitments and activities, that framework really emerged for me from my sources, right, from the work of um, the uh, of the many Tibetan authors I was reading, and not that they explicitly um, theorized the way that I am by any means, but I found that implicitly there was a strong sense that these apparently um, uh, contradictory, or at least the tension between being in the world and especially having authority in the world, right, as the members of Mindrilling did as aristocrats and as, you know, advisors even to the fifth Dalai Lama in the first generations, um, that that, to, how to balance that with Buddhist commitments to renunciation, um, you know, to, um, to, 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 and particularly to kind of renouncing attachment um, it was in some sense a driving question for me. You sort of, how did these things work together for these thinkers, for the founders of Minderling? How did they make sense of their kind of, you know, multiple roles and responsibilities at this period of Tibetan history to both be, um, you know, kind of models of, of a certain kind of governance and authority in, in a worldly sense, and also to be uh, models of Buddhist uh, realization and renunciation, right? And for me, what emerged from spending so much time with these texts was that these um, the, the working with the senses, and then particularly working with the senses in a way that was still rooted in a commitment to renunciation, 
always committed to uh, that ideal of renunciation um, was really how that sort of framework emerged for me. Yeah, thank you very much. That's a wonderful reply. And I think perhaps I want to put a pin on your response on in occasion, on certain occasions, not being able to work with material resources and have to rely on more textual resources, I think, which might be something particularly pertinent in our day and time. People are unable to travel for whatever reason. So I yes. definitely want to go back to that um, a little bit later. But I also have a, a second question, maybe for the listeners who are less familiar with the subject of your study. Maybe I'll start with... Um, what are monasteries? Um, why are they important for Buddhism, for Tibetan Buddhism? And where is Mingjuling? Yes, thank you. Um, so monasteries are so important in the history of, of Tibet and in the history of, of Buddhism, but I think they're important in the history of Tibet beyond Buddhism as well, um, in the sense that, you know, um, I, I would say not dissimilarly um, to the history of sort of higher education in Europe, um, monasteries were centers of learning. And, and so this is across uh, the Buddhist world, not only in Tibet, but I'll focus on Tibet. Um, they were the centers of, um, of debate, of uh, philosophical inquiry, um, of you know, uh, commentaries, of, of histories, of all of this production of uh, that we would now associate with universities, uh, all of that uh, happened in monasteries. So, and that goes back, you know, um, long before the relatively recent history history of Mindraling. You know, if we think about the history of Indian Buddhist monasteries like Nalanda, you know, this was really a massive um, university in essence, right? So. Um, that was the case, even, even, you know, there were certainly, there's a variety, there's a wide variety of what monasteries actually do in the Tibetan um, context. And so certainly there are monasteries that are very small, that are, you know, primarily um, shrines where people may uh, make offerings, uh, where there may be sort of a fairly limited number of ritual activities that happen, um, but that are fairly quiet, you know, and then moving from there to places that are more populated with um Ordained, you know, with with um, monks and nuns who live and study and uh, practice in in the monastic um, settings. Um, there are monasteries, and you know, again, sort of to illustrate the diversity of what monasteries look like in Tibet. There are monasteries that are very remote, which is in some sense the kind of ideal of a monastery, right? That it's it's separated from the um, you know the madding crowd of the cities. Uh, but there are also you know monasteries that are very close and 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 uh, embedded in cities. And so there there's quite a lot of variety, um, and uh, you know not to mention size. Um, you know there were monasteries around the time that Indraling was um, was founded. That had you know tens of thousands of monks, whereas Mindraling had about three hundred, right? So, you know, I don't want to um, I don't want to generalize too much about what monasteries are because there's a lot of variety, but certainly they're centers for ritual and certainly they're centers for learning, and I would say they're also centers for um, for cultural production, um, and um, and that's something that I think is is in some sense. Um, magnified in the role that Minderling played, but I don't think it's unique in that regard. Um, so the production of, of images, the production of texts, um, the production of poetry, 
um, you know, these kinds of all of these, uh, you know, um, media that we associate with cultural production um, are often tied to monastic histories as well, right? And that's to, that's not to say that they're not also places where people um, learn to. Um, where they, they learn to meditate, right? Or they learn to uh, do more um, the kinds of practices that that some people might, on a, in a kind of popular way, first associate with Buddhism. Um, but in fact, you know, certainly at Minderling, uh, it's a relatively small uh, segment of the population who are really dedicated to meditation practice and many more who are engaged in, um, in ritual activities um, and... So that's that's the kind of core I think, uh, or that's that's an overview of some of the main things that monasteries do. But also really important to note, um, and actually I wanted to mention the work of um, there's a wonderful, relatively new book um, uh, called The Monastery Rules um, by Bertie Jensen, and uh, it's such a great book. It's so well written, and also just so valuable in terms of really um, revealing the diversity of what monasteries um, have done, you know, in Tibetan history. And one thing that I think she really elucidates beautifully is uh, the role of monasteries as financial institutions. So um, oftentimes, you know, and this is something that that um, I think can sometimes get focused on in a negative way, um, you know, in, in a, from a kind of critical um, perspective of monasteries kind of hoarding wealth. Which I'm sure was sometimes the case, right? And I, 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 you know, there's not so much I can say about that. It's not my uh, direct field of study, but certainly also, and this came out in um, in uh, the monastery rules, and I also found it to be the case in the documents I worked with, um, that there were also a lot of careful ethics around how a monastery like Minderling uh, dealt with its wealth in regard to. Uh, lay people and villagers who needed, for instance, to take out a loan. So that's another um, way that uh, that we might say that monasteries sort of extend beyond the um, scope of what we may think of first and foremost as Buddhism, qua Buddhism. So within that context of um, the sort of, uh, you know, spectrum of, of monasteries from very small uh, and very remote to very large and, and even very urban, um, with the kind of range of, of, of focal points from, um, you know, sort of strongly focused on ritual to those places which are have a kind of a larger, you know, um, portion of their population that might be engaged in, um, in meditation or, or a retreat. Um, so with that backdrop, um, I started to sort of see Minderling as uh, exemplifying certain of those characteristics in a kind of particularly vivid way. And so, of course, as I've already mentioned, the cultural production side really kind of hit me over the head, you know, and even as my uh, research turned to more textual uh, textual kind of uh, engagements, um, as I had fewer opportunities to, to spend time in, um, you know, at the central uh, Tibetan monastery, which is uh, near Lhasa today, if you're, if you, it's sort of, Halfway between the airport and and Lhasa in south central Tibet, um, and um, so Minderling, as I said, I think really um, stood out to me as being like a particular, um, a particularly good example of monastery as a center for cultural production because of, as I've said, the focus on um, music, uh, monastic dance, incense, 
um, you know, painting the creation of mandalas and, and tormas. Um, and, and, and also, um, uh, textual production, you know, it's particularly poetics, right. Um, that Minderling was known for. And so, um, in this regard, I, I started to uh, sort of hone in on that as something that was both, you know, not that it was unique to Minderling, but that, uh, that Minderling really exemplified a certain kind of quality that I thought, um, allowed for a, a certain kind of, uh, for me, a new view of, um, of the purpose of a monastery. And again, I became very interested in the sort of ways that the Buddhist and the kind of, uh, and life, the, the Buddhist activities and life in the world could work together, right? Ways that they might not always be um, at odds with each other. And so I think that, you know, ritual activities came into focus for me as something that may link those two spheres. Um, partly, I think I was drawn to that way of thinking because Minderling um, is also well known as a place that um, both, how do I say this, it, in certain ways, um, it's sort of avowedly uh, not, not political and certainly non-sectarian in the sense that um, it, is, it is Nyingma and it uh, sort of exemplifies many of the qualities of what we think of um, as Nyingma. And that was very deliberate on the part of the founders, right, that they in a certain way sought to kind of clarify and revitalize the Nyingma tradition at a period when there was a sense of it being, um, for, for good reasons, um, imperiled. And so that was part of their project. Um, but at the same time, their engagement across all different kinds of sectarian and regional bounds um, really uh, speaks to a certain kind of ethic of, um, of um, openness and a sort of resistance to the kind of bias that leads to sectarianism. And I don't um, mean so much to kind of, um, you know, plug into the... Um, the use of the term non-sectarian uh, as a kind of, as we may from later in Tibetan history. Um, but rather, I think that the, what I see at Minderling really, um, maybe it was a kind of prototype for that, but it was really much more about a commitment to a Buddhist ideal of uh, a kind of um, openness in one's perspective, a kind of a, a, a strong commitment to resist bias a strong commitment to kind of uh, to a, a perspective or a worldview that was almost kind of panoramic. And with that, and this is really a, a, an ideal that is um, expressed um, throughout Buddhist, uh, throughout Minderling sources. And so with that came a kind of social political um, ramification of engagement across different um, sects and schools. Now, that said, there's also a real pragmatism to this, right, that um, Minderling was small. It had very powerful patronage in the Fifth Dalai Lama and Desi Sangye Gyatso, both of whom were very instrumental in the founding of Minderling. But this was a period of sort of intense volatility uh, politically. And so I think there was no guarantee that um, that kind of political patronage would hold fast, right? And that, um, so I think there was also a pragmatism, a political pragmatism that we can see in the Minderling sources that they're paying attention to the, the need to, um, you know, have, have many strong connections across different kinds of regional and sectarian boundaries. And so I think it's both a kind of um, an ethical uh, 
not just position, but an ethical mode of engaging across sectarian bounds, but also uh, of political pragmatism as well. Um, so that was another kind of key feature that I saw playing at Minderling that, again, both connects to many other monasteries, but for me was, was really kind of um, uh, magnified at Minderling. Thank you. That's a fascinating way of analyzing where Mingjuling, as its particular unique case, stands in geographically, historically, and in a sectarian way as well. I think it is from on the other side of the river, from what is considered usually a centrally Gelug place, Hinghwasa, and it is also um, connecting to, like you said in the book, to southern Tibet, this area called Loka, which is traditionally the, the heartland for this school of Tibetan Buddhism called the Nima school. And sectarianly, it actually also crosses a lot of boundaries. And historically, it is a time with many changes, but also tying back to what you mentioned about the, the connection between Buddhists and worldly and maybe in more distinctly Tibetan terms, the ideology of the Chue and the Si, so what is the Dharmic and the secular. I think that is, there's a lot of fascinating crossroads we see Minjuling stands on. So now that we're actually talking about how Minjuling stands at the crossroads of all of those important conversations, and we're naturally moving into the first two chapters of the book, so chapter one, historical background, discusses the history of Mingjuling's founding. And chapter two, a pleasure grove for the Buddhist senses, discusses the historical circumstances that are contemporary to his founding and that really came together for Mingjuling. I was wondering if you'd like to share with us a bit more about the important families, persons, sects, and ideas that came together to form the cultural phenomena of Mingjuling. Yes, thanks. So, um. You know, in terms of, I think when I was writing the dissertation, I started what with what is now chapter two. You know, sort of, you I started with the beginning, um, as it were, the founding period of Minderling, but very quickly realized that um, Minderling was possible, was made possible because of uh, or through the history of its uh, the family uh, that was at the center of its um, of its founding. Right, uh, this is a family lineage that. Um, in essence, the sort of main uh, authority roles pass from father to son and, uh, you know, uncle to nephew, um, rather than through, uh, mainly through a reincarnation line or, or a teacher to student line, although, you know, those, those uh, aspects are alive at Minderling in its history as well, but primarily it's a family lineage. And, um, with that in mind, it became clear to me that I needed to, understand more about the history of this family. Um, and one of the themes that emerged from the writing that I, um, that I encountered, and this was primarily biographical writing about um, the founders and then um, their, their um, you know, parents and grandparents. And a very strong theme emerged for me, or a few very strong themes emerged, but one um, became really central and kind of ties directly to uh, what you're putting as the sort of crossroads, the various kinds of crossroads that Mindrilling, um is situated at the center of. Um, and that theme is what in Tibetan is often called uh, Lukmi or um, Trinmi. And um, that means the, the either the two laws or the two kind of codes and um, or two um, systems and really refers to 
um, the systems of sort of, um, of, of Buddhism and some say politics or maybe more broadly sort of society. Um, and so these figures associated with the um, ancestors of the founders of Mindrilling, um, again and again, I saw this term um, come up, right? This term of, of that they were renowned for and had expertise in both sort of, you know, uh, societal, political, worldly affairs, as I came to use the word worldly to sort of encompass this broader scope, um, and in Buddhist matters. And so that theme um, seems to me to really help explain uh, why Mindrilling was able to um, take on the particular role that it did, because there was this long history of integrating these different kinds of authority in the same um, in individuals, right? And that has to do, I think, with, um, with an aristocratic um, history. Uh, the family um, the family group at the center of the monastery, the Nyo clan, is uh, a well-established um, aristocratic family in south-central Tibet. And what I found when I looked at those earlier ancestors uh, was that they um, very comfortably occupied these kind of dual roles that, that the fifth Dalai Lama um, was in some ways, I think, struggling to um, negotiate, right? How he, he's um, set up in this position um, to be an authority that is both political and, of course, his, his vision and his advisor's vision was to unify the Tibetan, um, you know, cultural geographic landscape in a way that um, that referred back to the imperial period in Tibetan history, um, and sort of carried that same kind of glory and um, and success uh, that he wanted to occupy that role. But at the same time, he was, uh, you know, a monk, a lama, a, a Buddhist um, a renunciant, a specialist, um, and I think that there seems to be. Um, you know, Samjan Karmay's work is so um, illustrative of the ways that um, this sort of difficulty of that um, dual role, of balancing that dual role, seems to come out in, in the Dalai Lama's own writings. And I also found in this is Gatso's writing as well, um, some kind of, you know, uh, uh, treating this as a problem that needs to be solved, right? I think in certain ways, um, they looked to Minderling as an example that they're through their family history, even before the founding of Minderling itself, that they had successfully balanced those different kinds of roles through, um, you know, through these two systems or traditions of, of Buddhism and worldly authority. And um, so in that sense, I think they, they, they were especially well-placed um, to receive the kind of support that they did um, from the fifth Dalai Lama and his regent, Desi Sange Gyatso. Um, and so one, one of the other key elements that began to um, uh, sort of catch my attention in looking at that historical backdrop, backdrop that's really a family history in many ways, uh, was the important role that many uh, women played in um, the history of the family and of Mindrilling. And uh, this, um, this came to me as a, a theme that um, really, um, although in some senses this is not a book about women or gender, um, I, I, first and foremost, um, the place that women have played in this um, monastic history from its founding, and even before its founding, crucially, um, became really important to me. And that, that also uh, was revealed to me through engaging with these biographical sources um, as I looked into the history of the family itself. 
And um, along with that is also a kind of, uh, there's the historical aspect of it, but then there's also uh, the more kind of mythological aspect of, you know, celebrating these early um, ancestors, and in particular, the um, the Nyo clan traces its history back to one single ancestor, right, which is, I, I get, in some sense, what makes it um, something we could call a clan, right, that there's a, a sense of a shared um, origin or, or ancestor, and that this um, ancestor um, is portrayed in um, biographical sources about Tadak Lingpa in the most vivid aesthetic terms, right? And this was uh, one of the moments that really drew me to think about how aesthetics was important, not only in um, figuring uh, these the, the aspects of cultural production I've talked about, but also in in um, in framing the figures, the founders of Mindrilling and their ancestors, as uh, as especially um, reliable sources of authority, as reliable sources of virtue, as reliable exemplars for how to be in the world as a good Buddhist practitioner. And I think that the attention to sort of beauty and um, and uh, aesthetic um, pleasure being gained from looking at these individuals, right, and that you see in the descriptions, the textual descriptions, um, you know, again, sort of further encouraged me in um, my pursuit of the sort of central theme of aesthetics um, in these in these Minderling sources. Um, and so that's something that also really came through for me in looking at the family history was that there was this clear sense of, of the physical beauty of an individual um, telling us something about their reliability as both an authority and a, a source of virtue. Um, and that, of course, is not at all limited to Minderling or to the Tibetan context that we can look you know, to um, to many other Buddhist contexts, to the Indian um, Buddhist context, and think about the way that Ashwagosha de- depicts the Buddha um, in the most glowing terms, literally glowing terms. You know, um, that that I think that's a well-established sort of literary practice to use physical beauty to convey virtue. Um, but that's something that I saw very strongly coming out of the Mindrilling sources as well. Um, so that, in some sense, is uh, were some of the really important um, findings for me as I researched um, Chapter 1 on the historical background. Um, and Chapter 2 um, is really, as you've said, it, it's the sort of um, the beginning of uh, Minderling as its own institution, uh, which happened under the direct um, auspices of the fifth Dalai Lama. Um, he... Uh, seems to have been uh, very, very closely involved, even in the sort of um, nitty-gritty of planning. Uh, there are in some of the sections of Tedrak Lingpa's outer biography um, that address this time directly. Uh, they talk about him hiring the, you know, the woodworkers himself. Um, and so there, there is a sense that this was really a project he was very, very um, committed to and engaged in. Um, and Thinking about how the figure of Terdak Lingpa as a much younger Nyingma uh, visionary, right, a, a Tertan, a visionary lama, um, and the fifth Dalai Lama as an older, you know, well-established Geluk um, statesman and monk, how they sort of came together uh, was, again, one of the sources of fascination for me and one of the driving questions. Um, just what drew them to each other and and how did their particular kind of um, confluence of of backgrounds and and commitments um, you know feed into what would become Mindrilling? So that all 
um, is, is sort of what I'm trying to get at in, um, in chapter two. Um, and so maybe I'll pause there. Is there anything in particular that you'd like me to follow up on? This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. No, I, I think that is actually a wonderful way to, to help the reader conceptualize the world majoring situates in the actress at play and the different forces that comes into being, as you said, the, the confluences of different personalities. And actually the con- relationship between Turda Lingba and the fifth Dalai Lama that you mentioned and the fascinating aspect of how they connected and confluenced with each other, I think might be a good segue to, uh, to the next chapter where you titled Plucking the Strings. It's a fascinating title, by the way, and where you talk about the Tibetan Buddhist conceptualization of Denje, this word, and we mentioned that a moment ago, auspicious connections, and how that actually materialized in relationships and especially in the practice of letter writing. I was wondering if you have any highlights or any um, important connections you'd like to share with us. Yes, thanks. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, the Fitzalanamas, oh, excuse me, the Tardak Lingfa's letters, um, when I was a master's student at Harvard, were one of the first um, textual sources that uh, got me really excited about this, this um, project. And um, from there, I went to investigate and translate just a couple of the Fitzalanamas' letters, the ones that he wrote to Tardak Lingfa in his collected letters. I don't have any sense of whether uh, they exchange more letters than these, but the Fifth Dalai Lama has just two letters to Tegat Lingpa that are in his um, collected letters. Um, and so, you know, through sort of uh, engaging with those and in looking at Tegat Lingpa's letters to various other figures, um, both uh, male and female, and also um, figures from different, again, different regions, uh, different family groups, different, um, with different sectarian commitments, um, I, I began to sort of, again, sort of flesh out this picture of, of um, the interconnectedness of these, yes, these two central figures of Tadak Lingpa and the Dalai Lama, but certainly also of Tadak Lingpa's family members, you know, of his brother, the great scholar, poet, and artist, Rochen Dharmashri, who I have to say in certain ways, I think, um, it seems to me to be a sort of intentional, um, he sort of kept in the, in the, um, he sort of kept not in the shadows, but, uh, the text sort of so often firmly center, um, center Terra as the charismatic founder, as the main figure of Mindreling in its early period. Uh, but the more time I spent with these texts, the more I came to see that Lochin Dharmashri, um, was really, uh, absolutely um, key, especially around so many of these questions of sort of aesthetic 
development and and cultural production. Um, And that was something that actually took me quite a long time to focus in on. Um, And in a certain way, really came out more on the revisions for the book than in the dissertation. Um, And I think that that's not accidental. I mean, I think that in terms of the way the institution works, that you know, the throne holder, um, the Chichen is this, is the central figure. Um, but, but it became very clear to me that the Chandarmashri is, is equally important. Um, and so with those interconnections, you have not just Tadakalimpa and the Fitzalai Lama, but, um, these other figures as well, the family members, as I've mentioned, and also, um, other, you know, the advisor like this is Angyagyatso. They were all in, in, intertwined, right? And, and that comes out through the letters very beautifully. Um, and very explicitly for the Fitz Dalai Lama, um, he is uh, strongly concerned with this um, this theme of Chusi uh, Zungdrel of of the um, integration of Dharma and or Buddhism and um, and uh, politics or worldly life as a kind of again as a kind of ideal um, that one should strive for, and he really looked I think to Tara Klingpa, um in many ways. Um, for how to do that, right? And so again, um, there, there's that sort of sense of interconnectedness. Um, but part of what really excited me about the letters from the Fifth Dalai Lama was the way that they sort of subtly reflected on personhood and um, on identity as as being, uh, you know, sort of literally um, uh, made up of your of your relationships, of your interconnections with both people from the past. And people in the present, and um, and also people in the future, right? This sort of sense of of reaching across time to think about those um, interconnections as forming the um, the individual in the current life or in this current historical moment that they're that they're operating in. Um, and so, um, the plucking the strings is my translation of, of a phrase that the Dalai Lama uses uh, when he um, is ending a letter to Tarakinpa, and, and he says, "You know, let's let's not let our discussion of the integration of, of Dharma and worldly life um, end here, um, but let's keep plucking these strings, you know, um, of this of this uh, beautiful kind of stringed instrument um, to continue this the music of this discussion, you know, to, let's keep this going." And I love the aesthetics of that again as well. Um, the idea that there's this sort of pleasure and beauty in working this uh, in working this out together, these ideas out together. Thank you. I, I found that to be such a fascinating and rich exploration into Tibetan literary world, aesthetics, like you said, metaphor. But it is at the same time very distinctly Buddhist in that it contains the reflection of personhood. And I think letter writing is something we don't think about, but I think for you to foreground this and foreground letter writing as a way of forging and sustaining connections and as a way of actually also as a way for the aesthetic formation that you mentioned about in Mingjuling, I find that to be fascinating as well. Thank you. Yeah, and I wish I could say more about the um, the sort of material aesthetics of letters. Um, I was working with um, you know, with, with um, uh, reproductions, right? I didn't actually have any with printed, you know, block prints of these letters. I don't have any um, any sort of uh, anything like original documents, which would be so fascinating to see. Um, but I do think that that the materiality of letters is uh, is a fascinating subject um, as well. That that I don't again sort of in that same um, uh, 
uh, continuing that thread of the certain ways that I was thwarted in engaging more with material objects than with texts, um, that was something I also would have loved to have, have been able to say more about, um, but just wasn't uh, wasn't accessible to me. Yeah, and I, I am sure there will be a future time where we can look at those letters in their original form and fascinate about the, the other aspects that we were not once even aware of. That'll be a good time. Yes, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of moving on to the next two chapters, one thing I, I find really fascinating in the arrangement of your chapter is that for a book on the monastery, you'd think monastic curriculum is something you will start with. But actually, for you to start with letter writing and actually moving on to this chapter titled Training the Senses, Aesthetic Education for the Monastics, so first, it is not the first thing that comes in the book, but also second, it is not really a Buddhist education that you were discussing. It is to a certain extent, but you chose to frame it as a aesthetic education. I was wondering um, what would be the thought that's going into this? Thanks. Yes. Yeah. I like that observation you make. I mean, I think in a certain sense, I, my, my mind moves somewhat kind of historically or chronologically. And so I, I moved in some sense, um, kind of simplistically through, you know, the sort of ancestors to the founders and their kind of thinking and engagements with each other. And then only once they had, you know, had the idea, had the inspiration, had the visions, you know, brought together the resources, built the monastery, built the uh, temple, you know, um, consecrated the images, established the the um, the site. Um, could they, you know, begin to um, train um, monastics and uh, and hold rituals and do that kind of daily uh, work of of the monastery? Um, and so that it is true that I come to the monks later, um, but I think that's partly to do with my kind of thinking about the the building blocks or kind of building up from the ground um, into the monastery and then populating the monastery um, with the with the um, with the monastics. Um, so I, I don't mean to say that their education wasn't Buddhist, but rather to say that um, that this idea of training the senses, and I I, I think it's you know I, something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about is whether there's the risk. I mean, you know, if you just look at the title of the book, um, you may uh, get the wrong idea about my interests and, and my argument in the sense that I'm not saying, oh, Minderling was all about kind of superficial interest in beauty and the surface appearances of things, that kind of derogatory use of aesthetics as um, having to do, or even not so derogatory, but having just to do with a kind of, again, a philosophy of art, um, that's not really what I mean. I really mean the training in the sense, training the senses, you know, and developing, cultivating an engagement with the objects of the senses, um, first and foremost, through ritual activities. There's such a strong focus on precise and sort of excellent execution of the ritual liturgies um, that were produced at Minderling. And uh, that was the Kind of daily bread and butter, uh, um, or the you know of of the um, primarily the monks uh, at the monastery. You know about I think at their height about three hundred and thirty monks. So that was the work that they were trained in. That work that they were primarily doing, um, and 
there was a strong sense that Tarek Lingpa and I think Lochan Dharmashri as well, you know, really were quite exacting about the um, the sort of level of expertise about, you know, adhering to um, the precise instructions. And so, you know, I don't mean that this was about kind of training them in art in a modern sense with a capital A, some kind of individual expression, or that it was training them in a kind of, again, a superficial um, um, you know, engagement with uh, the surface layer of kind of, you know, beauty is only skin deep kind of thing. Not at all. I think that um, the training in these ritual activities was very closely linked to the ideal of the monastery as a, um, as a center for ethics, for renunciation, even for, um, the, you know, sort of modeling uh, how to be a good Buddhist in the world. And that part of what they needed to do, part of their um, responsibility to the lay community was to be able to be experts and, and to conduct these rituals, which should be done sort of beautifully, correctly, um, you know, inspiringly and to appeal to the senses of the deities who are being offered to. So um, that's the kind of, you know, when I say aesthetic training, I mean training in the senses that way. Um, they certainly also, you know, they they memorized texts. They... Um, they engaged daily with tutors. Um, you know, they had chances to ask questions. They would do all of the kinds of, uh, you know, in-depth uh, Buddhist training. But what the distinction I did make is that it seems from the curriculum and um, that it was not everyone who was really trained as a meditator, and it was not everyone who was given the opportunity to dedicate the kind of bulk of their time, you know, day to day to um, solitary retreat practice or to meditation that is clearly marked off in the curriculum as something that's really for the most accomplished um, students with the kind of highest capacity in that standard kind of Buddhist formulation about education, needing to address people who have different kinds of uh, skills and capacities and different leanings. And so within that, you know, the authors are clear that um, some of the members of the monastic community are really um, not going to fare well if they're focused on meditation or if they go into solitary retreat. Um, and not just meditation, but but the sort of more um, esoteric Dzogchen practices um, that Minderling is actually quite famous for, um, that that was really in certain ways limited to uh, a small um I could even say elite um, section of the monastic population. So in some sense, I think underneath the um, argument I'm making in that chapter is um, as a, as a you know, professor, I, I teach a lot of undergrads and, you know, I, I think many people who teach Buddhist studies will relate to the fact that many of them come thinking that Buddhism equals meditation. And of course it's, you know, well-established that it's many other things besides that. Um, so to see that the, the monk's training was, you know, in uh, kind of engaging with text and reading and actually in writing, right, which is, does stand out as unusual um, in the Tibetan um, historical, this historical period, uh, that writing uh, different scripts was a, was a focus as well. Um, and so uh, in those ways, this is not perhaps Buddhism, you know, pure, pure and simple, but it is these kinds of skills that one needs to um to cultivate in order to teach Buddhism, in order to practice ritual, in order to engage with lay people in a productive way, in a, a, to be a good model. So I think that those things go hand in hand. You know, I don't see this as um, in 
contradiction with Buddhist um, values or ethics, but rather I see that focus on aesthetics having being you know being being ethically coded. Yeah, thank you very much for the clarification. And I think exactly like you said, it is not to negate the Buddhist aspect of the curriculum, but rather to enrich our understanding of what a Buddhist curriculum might be, and to put maybe a scare quote on what pure Buddhist might be, or what a pure Buddhist curriculum might look like. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I'd like to just highlight for the listener that there is actually a a complete translation that you presented of the curriculum section of the guidelines written by Terdak Lingba. And for anyone who is doubting the Buddhist nature of this curriculum, I would just read the conclusion part. It says, in brief, through the activities of studying, contemplating, and meditating day and night, heavy with the weight of learning, discipline, and nobility, become a field of merit worthy of praise by the wise. So there is definitely a lot of emphasis on on learning, on contemplation, on meditation, and discipline as well. Yes, yes. And actually, one thing I'd love to highlight in addition to that, thank you so much for reading that, um, is the focus on um, the fields of knowledge uh, called Rikne, which again are these are a really central part of the, this section of the monastic guidelines, um, which is really I'm referring to it as the curriculum. I mean, I should clarify that it's not marked off as okay. Now I'm going to be- begin the curriculum. I call it a curriculum descriptively, right? Because that's where Tiratlingpa says what the monks uh, at Mandarin study and should study, um, and how they should go about it, and what order of, of uh, operations they should use. So in that sense, it, it is, uh, you know, just descriptively a curriculum. Um, but uh, the central role of Rikne also really um, is one of the, in some sense, a kind of heart of the book for me. Um, Minderling was very, very well known, as I've already said, for um, poetics, uh, for all the language arts or all the literary arts, and uh, as well as medicine. And this is this all comes within this rubric of, of Rikne or the fields of knowledge as I as I translate it. Um, and that was really striking to me as well that um Terukinpa directed especially the best students, right? Especially those same best students who may eventually be able to go do solitary retreat, um, rather than being sort of like caught up in the difficult day-to-day work of doing these rituals. Um, you know, not that solitary retreat isn't difficult, but it's a, it's a different kind of labor. Um, that, um, that he said for those best students that they really needed to um, become very well-versed in these fields of knowledge, um, which again, encompass um, literary arts, as well as medicine in particular. And um, that struck me as really important, especially because he says to them that you know, this is going to be the armor that protects you in your future. And to me, that stood out as such a fascinating claim for uh, the head of a monastery to make about the kinds of learning, too, that's really associated with worldly learning, right? Rikne's most of the fields of, of study are not Buddhism, right? Buddhism is just one of those fields of study. And so um, that really struck me as, as a kind of... Um, as a keystone of the curriculum, um, and particularly this idea that that there was a, something about being in the world that you needed to have this knowledge um, to, to get by as well. Yes, I, I think your analysis really added to the question of what constitutes Buddhist knowledge, or maybe a better way to ask is, what is the fields of knowledge, which you used to translate this very much uh, keyword for us, Rikne here, 
that is taught um, within the confines of a monastery, which is actually neatly moves on to the next chapter where I think you actually talks about a curriculum at the monastery that is taught to non-monastics, which again kind of brings into question and brings us into a reflection of on how to think about monastery, how to think about its relationship with the different bodies of students. And it is not training them, but also taming them. And I find that word particularly intriguing. Um, so, the, yes, the fifth chapter um, on the kind of ed- education that um, some lay aristocrats uh, received at Winterling um, was actually, in a certain way, that was um, one of the first chapters, again, thinking about the the chronology of the writing, that was one of the first chapters that I began to research, partly because I found it um, just fascinating and a little puzzling that this monastery that was so well known for um, for esoteric uh, practice, for Dzogchen, or great perfection um, philosophy and practice, that it would also be uh, the center for, and it was a Nyingma monastery, would be the center for um, educating the, the kind of highest echelon of the um, lay aristocratic uh, youth, you know, uh, people sort of coming around 17, 18 year old, uh, years old, staying for a few years, really quite similar to, um, you know, to kind of going to, to college. Um, so I was, uh, early on in my research, um, I, I found evidence that uh, figures that who went on to be very, very significant political and literary figures in a firmly uh, rooted in a, in a kind of lay world, right? Not that they weren't Buddhist, um, uh, that they didn't have Buddhist devotion or weren't, um, you know, in some sense Buddhist, but that their main role was really as um, political or literary um, figures, civil servants. And I'm thinking, you know, of figures like Polonais, uh, who went on to be, um, you know, you could say the king of Tibet, or um, Dokarwa, who um, was a great writer and literary figure. Um, and these, so I, I was just sort of uh, somewhat nonplussed to begin to think, well, what were they doing there? Why Minderling? What, what, what drew them to Minderling? What was so special about it? Um, and one of the sort of most clear answers that emerged for me in engaging with the sources um, from Minderling was that actually writing, this expertise in writing, uh, was, I think, perhaps the um, main driving force. You know, so many of the, um, of you know, even other aristocrats who didn't actually go and, you know, stay at Minderling um, dur- during their sort of early adulthood and study, um, many of those lay aristocrats would, in their biographies, would mention, oh, you know, from this age to this age, I studied with a tutor from Minderling, you know, that these monks were trained in the literary arts and therefore were equipped to train people who would go on to political careers, who would go on to diplomatic careers, um, and, um, and, you know, not firmly rooted in a, a ordained or monastic community at all. And so um, for me, the, the central uh, importance and the value of writing um, really um, stood out for me as the, as the kind of main answer to that question of why Minderling, why were these lay people drawn to Minderling? Um, I think that there were other factors, you know, the, the, the sort of prestige of the, of the place, the, the, um, 
the fame and prestige of, of Teta Klingpa as a um, Tetran or treasure revealer, the fame of Lushan Dharmashri as a scholar, poet, artist. Um, those have all figured in the, the kind of support of uh, the Fitta Lama and his direct advisors. All those things mattered. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I really landed on the sort of expertise in writing and the capacity to train people um, in writing was was really um, at the heart of why Winderling served in this other role, which, you know, once again, I'll say it's not that other monasteries didn't um, have lay people who would come and make an offering and stay and study with a particular tutor for various periods of time. That certainly isn't unique to Minderling. Um, but I think that the a particular appeal, especially for these very um, kind of elite aristocratic families, um, did really strike me as being um, uh, strongly focused on Minderling as the, the kind of the place to learn, I think, especially literary arts. Yes, and I think this also ties back to the conversation we have a while ago at the beginning of the book of the standing at the crossroad nature for Mingjuling is the crossroad for, for the different looks or the different paths of the Chu, the Dharma and the politics, the sea, but also the monastic and non-monastic and also different modes of education. Certainly. And and for the read, um, for the listeners, I also like to highlight that if you are teaching a liberal arts college, you will find that there is a section called "What's the Literati Need to Know?" Minjuling's likeness to a liberal arts college, where you compared Minjuling's monastic curriculum with the Harvard and Yale charters of 1650 and 1701, and concluded that there is a similarity that in the ideal for those institutions to integrate worldly knowledge with religious ethics and discipline, which I find to be a, to be an exhilarating read in that way. So thank you for that. Thank you. So that actually brings us to the end of the book, but definitely not the end for Minjuling. There was a period of, like you said, it is a period of turmoil. It is a period of high volatility in Tibet. So there was a temporary destruction of Minjuling, sadly, but also very quickly after a rebuild of Minjuling for, from its second and third generation leaders. I was wondering if you'd like to um, tell us a bit more about that part of history. And we can also talk about how it actually right now becomes a global phenomenon in so many ways. Yes, yes. So certainly in some sense, what I um, have kind of contained very briefly in the epilogue um, certainly merits its own book. Um, maybe a, there's a graduate student out there listening who might want to take that on. I have my sights on other book projects, but um, it is a, a deeply tragic uh, period. Um, very violent, and um, you know, uh, really came at the great expense of the of the members of the family and the the community at Minderling, that they were targeted, um, along with other Nyingma monasteries, especially Dorjejak, as you mentioned, just across the river, um, by um, a group of uh, Mongol, uh, Dzungar Mongols, who. Um, you know, it seems with the encouragement of some of the uh, Gaelic authorities uh, really encouraged a complete destruction of these Nyingma institutions, along with other um, uh, sites of Buddhist practice associated uh, particularly with Buddhist Tantra. 
And so um, during that period in uh, about 1717, um, Tedeklingpa, by the way, had passed away in 1714. Um, there was a, a somewhat complicated um, transition to the second throne holder um, that uh, actually, you know, sort of opens up a whole other chapter. But I will say that there's a fascinating story about sort of whether the throne holder was not meant to be a, um, a monastic, it was not meant to be a monk. Uh, Teraklingpa was married and had children. Of course, this is vital for a family lineage, right? You have to have um, those, you know, in some sense, too, as an easy answer to why women were so important in Minderling is that they were part of the family lineage. Um, and they were not by any means just baby makers, but they were also really significant um, members of the um of the family in terms of uh, Buddhist practice and learning and uh, making decisions about the monastery. So that's something that that um, we haven't yet talked about and focused on, but I think I want to highlight um, as we wrap up um, is the role of women throughout. But um, so the, the throne holder um, was not meant to be a monk, was meant to be um, a, a practitioner who took other vows. And from a Buddhist perspective, you could say higher vows, more difficult vows. Um, but a tantric expert who uh, would was also able to um, you know to marry and have children. So um, as Tedeklingpa did. So um, in the passage to the next throne holder, this was troubled in some ways, and um, the in the very tragic um, turn of events that took place uh, with the Dzungar invasion was that the community of monks and also a nearby um, community of nuns just up the hill. From the monastery, uh, everyone was dispersed in uh, great peril. Um, the family members were uh, actually sought out for execution. Um, many of them were lucky enough to get away, or some of them were lucky enough to get away. But um, Lochen Dharma Shri and um, Teraglingpa's oldest son, Pema Girme Gatsil, were um, violently murdered. And the monastery was really um, almost completely razed to the ground. So this is a period of great pain, of course, in the history of Minderling and turmoil, um, and is the sort of you know starting point in some sense for um, the um, the next uh, you know chapter, not of my book, but of the history of Minderling in its early period, um, which which uh, very happily um, you know involved a, a a rebuilding, a reconstruction, and a reconstitution. Um, of the members of the monastery who were able to come back, members of the family who were able to come back from their various exiles and um, and uh, revitalize Minderling and actually quite impressively um, continue uh, in, in its role as um, the center of, of cultural production that, um, that I've highlighted um, in, the, in the previous chapters. So they were quite successful um, in part due to the patronage of some of those lay aristocrats who had studied um, had studied there under the first generation of lamas. So um, with that support, that financial support and, and actually political protection, they were able to um, to reestablish the monastery. And as you mentioned, you know, um, although the um, the central seat of Minderling as an institution, which is in south central Tibet, um, is quite quiet today. There are very few um, monks living there um, because of the political situation being quite restrictive. Um, they have quite a difficult time um, 
in, you know, having teachers come or engaging in um, ritual activities. And so it's quite quiet, although there are some um, residents there. Um, they have, Minderling has established a very, very, very vibrant um, seat in India and uh, in Dehradun, um, and particularly in the Tibetan um, settlement of Clementown. And there, uh, Minderling continues in its monastic traditions, um, uh, training, um, training monks particularly, and, um, you know, continuing as a, as a center for, um, for Buddhist practice in the Nyingma tradition. Um, and there are also, you know, various practice centers, um, you know, more globally as well in the United States and Europe, um, et cetera. So it is very much alive today, a very active, um, uh, a very active center for Buddhist practice um, that continues, right, um, in, in an ongoing sense. Yes, I think this type of transnational influence really speaks to Mingjuling's aesthetic formation and its cultural influence in the past as well as in the present. And just before we wrap up, I, I do like to highlight something that I observed as someone who also writes on women in religion is that you actually write about women of Mingzhuling everywhere. In the beginning chapter, the first two chapters, where you talk about historical background, where you, you mentioned that in the family lineage of Mingzhuling, women is always included between the conversation or correspondences with the fifth Dalai Lama and Terdak Lingba, there is a section of discussion on secret consorts. And in epilogue, Epilogue, you also mentioned there's future generations of women and Mingjuling, and you also mentioned meeting Kangju Rinpoche, who is also considered one of the current leaders in the Mingjuling tradition. So women actually occupies a lot of different roles in this tradition. They're semi-human in some ways, they appear as Dakinis, they can be historical or semi-mythical figures like Yeshe Tsogyo, there's the mother of Lochen Damashi and Tedak Lingba Lazin Yangjin Zhongma, there is the non-Mingyu pigeon, and there's women disciples corresponding with Turtak Lingba. And I think this really exemplifies a sustained attention that you are paying to women in the Nyingma Buddhist community and their role and their impact in the community as well, rather than dedicating a special section to it and to have it as one standalone chapter of a book. I was wondering if you would like to um, talk a bit more about this choice that you did. I'm so grateful to you as a reader for noticing that um, it was a very conscious um, methodological decision. Um, and it's actually something that certain readers who read earlier drafts said, oh, you know, you should just put it, put a chapter on women, you know, and have, it, have them, which I understand is a perfectly good um, suggestion. But I was really determined, you know, not to isolate the women in a, in a kind of handy chapter, um, but to really represent them as I found them in my sources, which was literally everywhere. Um, you know, they were, as we've said, they were, um, you know, central kind of um, hist historical, mytho-historical figures. Um, they were the mothers. They were the, the wives. Yes, they were the secret consorts. Um, they were the students and the teachers as well. And um, so it was a very um, deliberate decision. And I, I, I think it was mostly implicit. So I'm very, I really appreciate your close reading that you noticed um, that I, I wanted to represent that, um, you know, as, as sort of various threads throughout the book 
rather than, um, you know, having, having a sort of, um, in some sense, a kind of marginalized section of the book for the women, but to represent women as being um, throughout uh, the tradition and throughout the history. So thank you for noticing. Thank you. And I, I think you, in a rhetorical way, um, put women in other rooms where important decisions are made. <laughs> That's true. So I appreciate that as a, as a writing strategy. And it gives me a lot of place for me to think about my own writing as well. Thank you. Yeah, so Dominique, thank, thank you very much for your time. And we just have one last question left. I wonder if you mind sharing uh, with us what you are working on right now and what we might expect from you next. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I sort of have, I have two projects um, that are that are kind of at play right now. One is um, on poetics, Tibetan poetics and translation. And um, in the current iteration of that project, the translation part of it is mostly um, kind of thinking about contemporary translation theory and how we work with Tibetan poetry, um, different sorts of approaches, ways of weighing the relative um, value and importance of, you know, form versus content, um, you know, thinking about looking at other um, translation uh, fields coming from other languages and, and how we might learn from them. So that's been a really exciting um, collaborative work that I've been doing with many other scholars in Tibetan studies who are interested in um, in literary qualities of Tibetan um, as well. And so that's something that I um, foresee uh, writing more about um, in the very near future that I'm working on currently. And um, the other project is actually, um, it's almost a sort of, it, it's its in some sense ironic that I would say it's kind of bubbling up from the unconscious because it's on dreams. Um, you know, I said early on, I think in our in our discussion that I was first drawn to Minderling um, because I was interested in the Tibetan Buddhist um, uh, cultivation of, of, of dreams, of dream practices. And, um, you know, that has always been there in my peripheral vision. But more and more, it's sort of coming into the center. So uh, I have an, another project um, on uh, Tibetan dream practices um, as well. You know, sometimes we call that dream yoga um, that I, that's a little bit more nascent than the Poetics and Translation project, but that I'm also really excited about. So in, in a way, both of those kind of spring forth from my work on Minderling and my, the many years I've spent you know, uh, trying to listen to the voices of these Mandrilling figures and authors and writers um, from history, uh, but also will extend, you know, sort of uh, my focus um, sort of far beyond Mandrilling. Um, but with that said, I, I do think that Mandrilling is such a rich um, topic. It's such a rich font of, of possible projects. And by focusing on aesthetics, which I, I, for my own development and thinking, and I, I hope for our field, uh, was constructive and added to our understanding of Tibetan Buddhism, of Tibetan history, of, of, of Tibetan monasteries, of families, I hope. Um, but also it was, you know, of course, any, any focal point that you take requires that you um, don't pay as much attention to other aspects. And there's so much more to Mindrilling than what I could address in this um, in this book. So so that's something that I think, for at least for the time being, I'm, I'm moving to other fields, uh, peripheral related fields, poetics and dreams. Um, but I, I I very much hope that um, 
that you know th- there will be other research on Minderling, and I look forward to reading it. Thank you very much. I I do see this book as providing two critical contributions. One is to to think about aesthetic formations and how I how we can extend that to other topics and maybe other locations and contexts. But the other one is yes, a invitation for people to to keep on with the fascination with Minderling as a cultural phenomenon, and I. Personally, also look forward to more books to come. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Likewise.